Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. I gave you two handouts, and what I'm going to focus on a little bit on the first handout, just briefly, you can read this on your own in depth, but I put on Augustine's Manichaean interpretations, and basically what you start seeing, we've talked about it, he starts interpreting scriptures from a Manichaean Gnostic level, and so um, I'm going to deal with John 6 tonight a little bit, but let me let me briefly talk about Psalm 51, 5, real briefly, and let's... Let's make sure we nail that down, okay? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What does that mean? Does that mean what the Calvinists say is that, see, you were born condemned? Or maybe let's go the Catholic route and say, because sex is evil, the sex that was done between your mom and dad and that birthed you was evil, so you're evil. Because remember, in the Catholic dogma, sex should only be for procreation. If you did sex for enjoyment, that's sin. No, no thank you. Some of you guys are like, maybe, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no. So what does David mean when he says, in sin or iniquity, was I conceived? What is he referring to? Yes, thank you. The consistent teaching of Scripture, and David's being very consistent with this, because it goes all he's, re, he's referring back to Genesis, that when our parents fell, and what we have learned through Scripture is that now that sin nature is then passed on to humans and you get it at conception. It's basically what Psalm 51 is saying. You get your sin nature from your, your parents or particularly your dad at conception, if that makes sense. Now, As you can see, that's something very simple, but yet if you take an Augustinian, Manichaean, Gnostic interpretation, then you put in all kinds of other stuff that it's not saying, like condemnation, and that's why Augustine or Calvinist could say that a child is condemned from birth because they have a sin nature and they're condemned for having that sin nature. And what did we say? You are not condemned for having a sin nature, you are condemned for ratifying the sin nature. What is What do I mean by ratifying the sin nature? Is that when I come of age, what do I eventually going to do? I'm going to sin. I'm going to know what sin is. I'm going to know that I'm, what I'm doing is wrong. I'm consciously aware of it. And then I ratify that sin nature, and that makes me condemned. Okay, That's why we say, children go to heaven if they die, um, or mentally handicapped people that don't understand things, because they're not condemned for having a sin nature. Okay? So, what Psalm 51 is talking about is the passing on of the sin nature, not a passing on of condemnation. Stephen? 
So let's parse that out a little bit. You guys understand the nature of the question? Okay. To understand what makes you condemned is you have to know the difference between sin and transgression. They're not the same. Okay? A transgression is a known law that has been put down by God and you know the law and you violate it. So when Adam and Eve are told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is a law. And what did they do? They transgressed the law. Now question, did they sin? Yes. And they transgressed the law. They did actually both. They sinned and transgressed. So here's the thing about transgressions. If you transgress a law, you not only transgress, but you also sin. But in the other category of sin, you can sin, but not transgress a law. Does that make sense? Okay, so let me give you an example. Adam and Eve no doubt transgressed when they ate of the fruit, okay? But if you look at the story more in depth and you study what they're doing, they are sinning before they transgress. Does that make sense? How did they sin before they ate? It started here. And the first part it started, they believed what? From Satan. They believed a lie, which would be a sin to believe a lie. You won't die. They have now apostatized because now they're believing in something that's not true. And then in their mind, it says that all three elements of temptation or what makes a person sin was involved. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life were all involved in Eve's decision to take and in transgress the fruit. Let me ask you this. Is lust of the eyes a sin? Yes. Is pride of life sin? And so is the other one. Okay, I can commit those three sins and still not transgress the law. Because that kind of sin is internal. It's in my heart. This is what Jesus was trying to get to the heart of the matter with the Mosaic Law. Basically, the Mosaic Law is they thought that only outwardly violating or transgressing Mosaic Law was what God held you responsible with. And Jesus comes back and says, no, that's not what Moses meant. Moses also meant it's not just a transgression, it's what's going on inside of you. Yes, you have not transgressed the law by murdering somebody, physically murdering somebody, but I tell you, you're still sinning if you hate somebody. So the intent of the law is internal and external, but a lot of the externals are transgressions versus a lot of the other things inside of us are just sin, and there's no necessarily law that you're violating, but you are sinning, if that makes sense. What am I sinning against? Or who? God. But what? What law? The eternal moral law that extends through all dispensations of time that is written on the hearts of human beings that's inside of you. Romans chapter 2 points this out. That no human being 
goes without what is written on their heart. The moral law of God is written on their heart. And they know it. And they can't deny it. It's there. And so you can sin against that law without transgressing an actual law, if that makes sense. You do both by transgressing. You do, you only do one by sinning. Romans chapter two, when he says that the Gentiles not having the law have the law written on their hearts and it accuses them and bears witness against them. So basically what what Paul's argument was, Lynn, was that yes, the Jews have Mosaic law and, and so, but the Gentiles don't have the Mosaic law, but they have a law on their heart anyway that God put on there. And so they're, 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 they're guilty of violating that, which is written on their heart. That makes them sinners. So here's my question. Are you condemned for trespassing? Yes, because in a trespass, you're not only trespassing, you're sinning. Are you condemned for committing sin? Yes. The wages of what? Trespasses? Sin is death. Okay, so... What I'm trying to parse out is you have to understand what you're condemned for. You're condemned for sin. Sin is a part of a trespass, but you may not have ever trespassed anything, but you sin. So, back to Stephen's question. Because the law is written on a child's heart, and when they become of age, they will know that lying is wrong. Okay, You don't ever have to tell them the Ten Commandments. You won't, because that law is written on their hearts. So it's when they violate that law written on their hearts that it becomes sin for them. And then they're condemned at that point in time. It takes one sin to get condemned. So it's, so to Stephen's question, a, a child doesn't know, have to know the 613 Mosaic laws, nor does he have to know the 1,200 laws under the law of the Messiah to be condemned. They just have to violate the law in their heart, which causes sin, and then that's enough right there. So, and the moral law, I understand, is carried through all dispensations. Even though the law changes in every dispensation, the moral law, or the what we call the eternal law of God, never changes. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Any questions? Yes, Chris. Please understand, because we're studying Calvinism, Calvinists already believe you're born with a hard heart. Calvinists believe you're already blind from birth. But what the Scriptures teach is the opposite, that you harden your own heart. You actually blind yourself. You're not born that way. This is why 75% of salvations come before the age of 12. Why? Because their hearts are not hard. They have not blinded themselves because of all their issues or anything like that. And so they're more receptive to the gospel at a younger age. Therefore, to Chris's point, what's happened is when a child is young and they become aware of sin, they are really hypersensitive to sinning against God. It's, it's, it makes them feel guilty. They will try to cover it up and they do it by lying and all their kinds of stuff. But they're very, very sensitive to that. And they want relief from it many times. And they will, you will notice a child eventually uh, will eventually confess it because that's a natural, they want to get that out some way, somehow, eventually. Because it, it, it bothers them so much. But if the child starts suppressing that, 
starts hiding it more, what happens to their heart is they start growing harder. And every time they sin and hide and suppress, they get harder. And if they keep doing this, they will eventually harden their heart so hard they will not come to faith in Jesus. And that's what starts happening to an individual. Now, at any point in time, the individual can unharden their heart. And how do you do that? Well, the command is simple. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Okay? This is Again, this is not Calvinism. It's what the Bible says. To get out of being a, a hard-hearted person, you have to humble yourself. Well, what does that mean to humble myself? Get on my hands and knees and crawl in front of a statue like the Catholics do? Is that humility? No. What would the command to humble yourself imply to get out of having a hard heart? What does that mean? What would I, what would you tell somebody? Say, you know what? You have a real hard heart. You gotta humble yourself. Okay, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to humble. What do you mean? Get on my hands and knees? Is that what you're talking about? No. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's referring to what we call spiritual poverty. In order to get away from a hard heart, which is built up by pride because you're covering, you're covering, you're covering, you're covering, you're covering, because your pride will not admit something, your pride is not allowing you to seek an answer, seek help, seek restoration, seek forgiveness, so you're hiding, 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 and pride and pride and pride and pride is building, making you hard. Well, to give up pride, you have to admit spiritual poverty. And until the person's willing to admit spiritual poverty, they're not going to humble themselves. Spiritual poverty means I am spiritually bankrupt to get out of the ditch that I'm in spiritually. And until they get to that point, they have to do that themselves. They have to say, I have no resources to fix my problems. I have no way out. I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps this time. I am flat on my back and I can't do anything. And then that's when they turn to God for help. But they have to get to that point. Can they get to that point with a hard heart? Absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar did. His heart was turned back into a heart of a man, was he not? Some people even say that Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Think about that. because But he went through an insanity stage. Remember that? He was eating grass like an animal. But he came back because he humbled himself and said, Daniel, your God is the God of, of, of the universe. J.D. Yeah, you lived it. And, and so you take J.D., for example... You almost died, right, from the fall that you had? I mean, because suffered severe brain damage. I mean, you went through the ringer. So he's told me his story, and so J.D. takes this, what, 30-feet fall or something like that? 35-feet fall on his head. And how long were you in the hospital, J.D.? Six months? And you nearly died, right? Okay. So he almost goes lights out. 
because of falling on his head 35 feet in the air and coming down. And, and, and what does it do? It humbles him. It really put him down from what I understand, right? It put him down. And, and, and maybe that's what it took. I mean, it's not that God caused that, but that experience showed JD, dude, you're flat on your back. There's no way you're getting out of this unless the Lord helps. And it was a miracle by the Lord that got you out of that, that physical jam. No doubt about it. But it, 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 it took that for JD to become spiritually poor. It broke him. And JD is a different guy. So what, since, what tends to have to happen is the Calvinist will not admit that you can get out of a hard heart. You can if you follow the commands. The command is humble yourself. And, and so with that being the case, you have to admit spiritual poverty. And I've made, I've made this point before, and let me finish this thought. When you notice people tell you, you know what, I just can't get into the Bible. It's just, I read it and I'm bored and I actually fall asleep, Brandon, when I'm praying and I fall asleep when I'm reading the Bible and I just, you know, I'm just not that into it. Do you know what's what they're telling you? They don't have spiritual poverty. Because if you're starving for food, you will go find it. Spiritual poverty, in another metaphor, would mean I'm spiritually hungry and thirsty. Jesus said, come to me and you'll never be thirsty or hungry. But what kind of hunger and thirsty was he talking about? Spiritual. So if the Christian tells you, I'm just bored with the Bible. I don't really not into reading. I can't focus. It's not an attention span issue. It's a spiritual poverty issue. They don't realize how much they need the Bible. That's the problem. And honestly, I can't fix that for them. I cannot fix that for them until they come to that realization that they are desperately in need of the Scripture. Desperate. Now, if you're a desperate person and you're feeding off of this because you're spiritually hungry, Dude, I, you'll be in the Bible all day long. We can't keep you away from it. No, you will not have to have some outside motivation of, of, of accountability of saying, have you read your Bible today? You won't need an accountability partner to, to check on if you've read the Bible. You know that 61% of Christians don't read the Bible every day? They simply don't. Don't touch it. Why? Spiritual poverty. They don't understand how bad they need it. 61%. 61%. So, you know, if you don't live and die on this word, you don't have any poverty. The heart of flesh is, is a softened heart. So a heart of stone, or it's, it's another metaphor for a hard heart, right? A heart of stone. Um, God told Israel, I will turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Right? And so it's the idea is, I'm going to get you from your rebellion to a softened heart of humility and cooperating with me spiritually. And he did that through putting him through the ringer a lot of times. And eventually the big ringer is the Antichrist. Yeah, you know, 
that 40 years in the desert or the, the big one that, uh, that really hit Israel pretty hard was the 70 years in Babylon. That was really a big deal for Israel to turn their heart from stone to flesh. So as you can see, it's commanded, isn't it? That God can do this if they allow it. But the Calvinists say, no, no, it can't happen like that. They'll say God has to do it, but without your will being in involved. So you come to a Calvinist pastor and you say, hey, pastor, I need, I need you to pray that God would change my heart of my, my family member. And so the Calvinist pastor is going to respond, okay, but again, that's not a guarantee that God will do it, obviously, because God is the one who changes the heart. And so we're going to pray that God changes the heart. But if he doesn't, that means that God decreed that his heart wouldn't change. And they'll lay it on the footsteps of God being blamed for not changing the heart of the kid. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that's typically a response that they start giving. Now, here's the question. If you're a non-Calvinist and someone says, pray that my son's heart or daughter's heart be changed, what do we understand from God? That God wants them to be changed, right? But he will not violate their free will. So what I'm in effect as a pastor would be praying is that I would pray that God would work the outside circumstances and would work the situations and the providence and the people in their lives to make them soften their heart. And I might even pray a hardcore prayer like this. Do whatever is necessary to wake that person up. Because God's not going to violate their will. So I'm praying for God to work outside of them to break them down. Now that's pretty scary. That's a scary a prayer that any grandparent or parent does not want to be praying. But we would rather that than them go to straight to hell. So what's the alternative? Eternity uh, in fire? Or, hey, you had a car accident. I'm glad it woke you up. Or, hey, you had a drug overdose. I told you. I hope this wakes you up. You nearly died. I hope this wakes you up. Or something like that, right? It sometimes takes some extreme thing to wake someone up. And like with JD's testimony, he almost died. And he totally changed. That's how a heart changes. That's the kind of prayer you're to be praying for about somebody. Now, here's the deal. Is there a guarantee behind that? No. I can pray all my life someone's heart changes. They won't change. That's how hard your heart gets like Pharaoh. Yes. And the ultimate of circumcision of the heart actually is another phrase of being born again. And so how does someone become born again? Is it the Calvinist born again? God makes you born again and then you believe. Or is that you humble yourself, believe, right? Because you get rid of your pride and then, then he makes you born again. So there's where the circumcision of the heart will then come in and makes that heart alive again, born again, born from above. So... That being the case, I think you start seeing that a child is not born with a hard heart. A child that continues to ignore their sin and bury it develops a hard heart. 
You won't see a five-year-old shaking their fist at God hardly ever. They're very, very tender to God, aren't they? Very tender. But man, the older they get, they start getting harder, don't they? So here's my question. Do I have time? Yeah. See if see if we we can figure this one out with hard hearts. What is it that they're not doing correctly that's making them become harder? They're not listening. Yeah, that's that's it. There's a reason they're not listening. Why aren't they listening? Why aren't they doing what they were told to do as a child or or you know as you you taught them from the scriptures? What's what's really happening to them? The parents might be not living it right, so you have some hypocrisy in the house. By the way, that's what Marx saw in his house. They were Jewish, but he saw his dad that told him they were they were going to synagogue, right? And then his dad switched over and go, went to the Lutheran church or something like that. I think it was the Lutheran church. And Marx went to his dad and said, Dad, I thought we're Jewish. What are we doing over here in the Lutheran church? He goes, that's ah, good for business. No joke, man. It really happened that way. And when Marx heard his dad say that, then that's when he came with up the concept is that religion is what for the masses? The opiate of the masses. It is a joke. It is fake. And developed Marxism, as you know. So you got hypocrisy. What else do they see that would develop a hard heart? They continue to listen to lies. And see, the kids, everybody's being bombarded by lies all over the place, what's true and what's not. But the sin nature, because you're born with a sin nature, actually will gravitate to lies. Have you ever done the experiment in your life before you were saved? Have you ever thought back of how you naturally gravitated to the wrong things? Okay? It's pretty obvious, right? Your sin nature just naturally pulled you there and you wanted that. My sin nature too also pulled me in my thoughts as well. Did it do that to you? It pulls you to bad behavior, pulls you to bad thoughts, and it pulls you to bad attitudes. It really does. It hits all three areas. Now think about this. I, I, here's an, an experiment that I look back in my whole life and, and I say, wow, that's one example of myself not being controlled by obviously God. So my first year in undergraduate, the first paper I wrote my freshman year in college, the professor put out to us, this is going to blow you away, okay? Write a defense that or whether or not there is absolute truth or that truth is relative. Okay? Now, I'm not a believer. I'm not a believer. I came out of Catholicism, but I'm lost. I don't have a biblical worldview, don't know anything. Okay? So I start proceeding to write the paper. And I ended up getting that paper done. And I think it was like a five, seven-page paper, just a little short one. And turned it in. And I got an A-plus on it. Can you guess what side I took naturally? I took moral relativism. Now think about this, what I wrote. 
I mean, dude, the professor highlighted it to the class and said, you want to see a good paper? It's this paper. And I was speaking his language and didn't know it. It was a paper from hell. Okay, but I got an A+. plus. I thought I was a genius because I wrote, I said, well, it makes perfect sense that some, some tribe in Africa practices life this way and we practice life in America that way and, you know, people over here practice life this way and so how could we put moral absolutes on all these different civilizations and cultures because obviously they were raised differently, they thought differently, and without ever being coached by any leftist. I want you to think about this. I was, I had no influence from leftism. My sin nature instantly came up with leftist propaganda without any influence. And I, and I look back at that, that time and I got saved later that summer. I looked back at that situation and I thought, oh my goodness, no wonder unbelievers gravitate instantly to this junk. Because I did. That was the, it wasn't like, like, my parents were conservative, right? I, they didn't teach me this. I actually came up with it on my own. But I know where it came from. It came from my sin nature, didn't it? That truth is not absolute, but it's moral relativism. And I thought I was, I was a genius now all of a sudden because I, I thought I had invented this. And I didn't realize every nut job on this planet has come up with that. And I'm just another nut job. Well, I got saved because I heard the gospel for the first time clearly. Not the Catholicism version. But I heard David Jeremiah give the gospel on the radio and it, uh, it resonated with me. And so I accepted the Lord. But what changed it for me was not that instantly I started having this hunger to learn more. Is that when I went back to school, I got in fights. That's what changed it. Because I saw that this budding worldview that was inside of me was in direct opposition to everything I was hearing in the classroom. It was in direct opposition to the kids in that school. And I started realizing, and then when, when you started vocalizing those points of truth, that I saw the hostility coming from them. Like I said, when I wrote papers that satisfied the, the professor, I got A pluses, man. It was easy. The minute I started writing papers in opposition, political theory, towards the professors, the fight's on. And I think, John, in my own walk with the Lord, it was the fight that brought me out, that that made me have the impetus to go figure out apologetics, how to answer these skeptics, and how to deal with them. And I think that's what started me down that path. But it wasn't because I was having an easy road. It was because God immediately thrust me into a hostile environment. And the fight was on, dude. Instead of getting A's, I got zeros. I got rewrites. You go rewrite this. One of the professors who used to be on uh, History Channel, my roommate was from South Carolina. He was a Christian. I was a Christian. We wrote a paper, and uh, we were taking Judaism. And, 
and studying Judaism. And so Professor Siegel, he called us in the office and he said, I can't believe people like you exist. You two people have got to be the stupidest individuals I have ever seen. Go rewrite this now. And so what I did is I wrote, Professor Siegel believes this. Professor Siegel believes that. Professor Siegel believes that. And Professor Siegel gave that paper an A. <laughs> because all I did was write, this is what the professor believes. And he loved hearing himself, so that's how you played the game, right? Stuart. Oh, yes, this was Columbia. Of course it was. Yeah, the most liberal institution to ever walk the planet. And now I realize why I was there, I think. Um, I needed that training, I guess. So, I guess that's what Joseph said. You guys meant it for evil, but God means it for good. I hated my experience at Columbia, but the things I learned are invaluable. Absolutely. A believer and an unbeliever would be affected by a hard heart. Yes. See, once the interesting thing is, this is the problem with Calvinism. It makes believers like super saints all of a sudden. Like they can't apostatize. They can't get into false doctrine. They can't slip up. They can't get into protracted areas of sin. And, and, and they can't get a hard heart. And it's like, that's baloney. Because there's all these admonitions in Scripture not to harden your own heart. Not to callous your own heart. And so, yeah, one of the big problems you see in Christianity is people with hard hearts. They're saved. But their hearts are so hard, man. It's just like you can't even deal with them. And so... They're obviously out of fellowship with the Lord. They're not in fellowship, and, and they're hard. If you're hard in your heart, what are you denying? You're denying reality. Okay? And so you go hard because you've created your own reality. I don't just Take, for example, like um, how hard heart develops from unforgiveness. Let's take that for example. So the person, the Christian, knows they need to forgive, right? Okay? They know it. And they say, well, I've forgiven them, I've forgiven them, but they still have issues because they have major anger problems, they have major isolation problems, and all this stuff's coming out that, that indicates they really haven't forgiven. And I get it. I mean, trauma can happen to you big time, and it, it's hard to forgive the person. I get it. I totally get it. But the longer you don't forgive, the harder you become. And people will say, well, I'm holding on because I want the penalty exacted on them and I'm not going to let this go until I see them punished because I want them punished for what they did. So they won't turn the penalty over to God. But the longer they hold the penalty, the harder and harder they get to the point that they get so hard, they switch over into unreality and they think they don't have to forgive because they're right and they're the exception to the rule. Even though Jesus says, you need to forgive to establish forgiveness fellowship with me, they'll say, no, I can be a good Christian and hold on to this because I ain't forgiven that. Well, at that point, they're out of reality because that's not biblical reality. Biblical reality says, if you don't forgive, you're out of fellowship with me. And so they think they're in fellowship. They think they're tight with God. But in, in reality, they're not. That's how delusional they have become. And so, honestly, there's a lot of Christians walking around delusional, thinking they're spiritual saints, that they're totally out of fellowship. Entitlement? Yeah, that's another thing I'll put you out of. Because what happens? Okay, 
Someone does something bad. Let's just take this whole thing out with forgiveness. Someone does something bad to them. So they won't forgive because, hey, man, they should know better. How dare they do that? Don't they know who I am? Okay, well, that kind of thinking is pride, right? Don't they know who I am? I, and, and so the person's acting like they don't live in a fallen world. Okay? It's an unreality. So, so not only unforgiveness comes, but entitlement comes. Because what are they thinking? Hey, ma'am, I went through this bad stuff. I deserve special treatment. Because of all that I went through, how dare you treat me bad? Be like, because don't you know what I went through with my ex-spouse or whatever? Or don't you know what I went through with my parents? I deserve now special treatment from all of you. Because I'm a wounded narcissist. And that instantly puts someone out of reality, Maria. When you're a wounded narcissist and you think you're entitled, whew, get away. Okay, so someone has anger issues. Okay, take that for instance, okay? Their anger is tied to unforgiveness a lot of times and resentment for what someone did to them. So instead of biblically handling the anger through grief, because grief is the process of how to handle when someone does something bad to you, you actually go into grief. That's what the God-given gift to you and I was, the ability to process pain and hurt through the grief process. If you refuse to grieve, you won't be able to forgive. Okay, so back to this. When they refuse to grieve, when they refuse to deal with the issues, they have super amount of rage. Like super, super amount. So like a little thing will set them off like to the nth degree and like, whoa, I just barely said, hi, how you doing? Well, I just don't like the way you came in like that and, and you're popping off. And you're like, wow, dude, what happened to you, man? And because they're at the nth degree. They're at the nth degree because they won't forgive and they resent and they're bitter and angry. And so what do they do? I got to get calm of this anger. I just got to get control of this anger. So they go to a doctor. And so the doctor puts them on anti-anxiety meds to calm their anger. And so they're all medicated. And I get it. They do calm down, but they still haven't resolved the issue. I get it. And I'm not, I, hey, I'm, I'm for medication if it, if you need it. But I'm not for medication because you refuse to handle your issues. I get it because a lot of times people need medications because their chemistry is all fouled up. And you can't get them back to normal until that chemistry gets back to normal. Their serotonin levels are all messed up and they got to get that balanced and squared up. And so, hey, there's times when you have to be on meds. Don't be afraid to go on meds to help you out. But what I, the point I'm making, and please understand the point I'm making, if it's not a chemistry imbalance, but you're just simply getting on meds to control your anger instead of you biblically handling it, then that's a problem. Because you're just shoving down the unforgiveness and not dealing with it. And I don't care how much meds you get on, it's never going to take away the bitterness and resentment towards that. Yeah. You're useless. And so it comes down to a matter of trust. If forgiveness, if you're dealing with forgiveness, it's a, tr it's a trust issue with God. Now, what do you mean a trust issue? Because I'm going to, in the process of forgiving, 
I'm handing over the penalty aspect to God. That I am not going to exact the judgment and the penalty, so I give that penalty and trust God with that penalty, and that's the way I can release it. But if you don't trust God for the penalty, you won't give it to God, and you will harbor it. Now, here's my question. Why would you not give the penalty over to God? Why do Christians don't do it now? They don't trust Him. What part is of it that they don't trust about God for the penalty? They want justice their way instead of God's way. So I only hand it over to God if I can get a promise from you, God, that the minute I hand it over to them, you strike them with a bolt of lightning. And that's the only thing I'm going to do. So I have to have that guarantee from God, and you better show me in Scripture where that verse is, and then I'll hand it over to God. And it, you, you say, well, it's in Second Hesitations chapter 2, because that's not part of the Bible. You made me forgive him, and you're not doing anything about it because the guy or the person who did this to me is walking scot-free, whistling and zippity-doo-dah, and nothing's happening to him. I can't tell you how many people say that about the people that hurt them, that, hey, man, they're still, like, walking away. They got away with murder, and they, don't they going to pay? Why isn't God doing anything to them? And that's the good question, theologically. Why isn't God doing anything to him? What does the Bible say? Right? So with that, and then you couple that with Second Peter chapter 3, when the scoffers come, Peter says, do not consider the Lord's slackness as if he's not going to judge them. He's giving them the patience or the time available in order for them to repent. And you might say, well, I don't want them to repent. Get them now before they repent. Right? Which is just Jonah, right? Just like what you guys are saying. Get them. I don't want them to repent, which is exactly what Jonah's attitude was. I don't want you to save the Ninevites. I want them hammered. And dude, you think, you think I'm making this up, dude? I'm seeing this constantly with people for 20 years. It is the mainstay of why people don't forgive because they don't trust God will judge them in the fashion they want them judged. And, and, and honestly, man, I'm mean, seriously, if people are honest, they'll tell you, man, I want these people destroyed, man. I want them to come to economic ruin. I want them to, de I want them to be begging that I was the love of their life. And, and they, I, I want them to say, I could never do any better than you. You were, they, I was so wrong and, and you're perfect. And they, the things they want from the people, are so ridiculous, they'll never get. I go, really, you think your mom and dad are going to come to you and tell you that, hey, you know, man, we, we really blew it, man. And, it, you know, we, we're so sorry we ruined your life. Here's a million dollars to make it up. They're not going to do that. But they actually believe in their fantasy world that one day mom and dad are going to have a, a novena and and are actually going to do that. And so they actually hold out for that. And I have to tell them, if you're waiting on your mom and dad to do that, 
you're crazy. You're not even in reality anymore if you think that's going to happen. By the way, I tell them, here's the, good, here's the news about your mom and dad. Your mom and dad have cemented themselves into their final self. They are going into eternity like this. They're not changing. So that ship has sailed. Say goodbye so we can finally move on with your life. I, I, that's what happens. That's right. That's me. Do the vengeance. I, hey, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll step right in there, right? And he, he, yeah, that's right. He takes too long, and I want to do it now. So, the essence behind this. So, so back to Maria, your initial question. If you're going to go, if person's going through all of this nonsense, dude, you're totally out of reality at that point. You can see how that would put you out of reality, right? Yeah. It is. It is a it, getting into unequally yoked situations. Um, they think they can make it work, Richard. Right? Yeah, I can. I I can change him. I can change her. She's a diamond in the rough. And I want to say, no, dude. She's a test pilot at the broom factory. <laughs> Stay away from her, dude. <laughs> no, you don't go for that. But they, they think they can do it. They think they can do it. Right, you, yeah, you might, you might not, but they're saying, yeah, it does find them out. Now, now, the interesting thing about that, some of the penalties that they're having, because you can't get away from the wages of sin is death, is because of what that person does, and if they don't repent, they have introduced the death principle into their lives, and that death principle is slowly killing them. And not just physically, but it's actually killing their relationships. It kills their interactions at church. It, it starts... They start dying already, early, an early death. And that's the death principle. You can't get away from that. And that's why God says, I will not be mocked. What you sow, you shall reap. And so it, it does come back to them. But here's the deal. You guys will never see that. You'll never see the death principle at work with these people. Now, maybe you will some case, but most of the time you're like, hey, I think this person's getting away with it. And I said, no. They're not ever getting away with it. They are dying inside. A piece of them has died. And they're really not coming back to their old self. They'll never be the same anymore. And, and so what it really is, when you introduce the death principle into your life and you don't stop it, it's a slow suicide. It's a very slow suicide, but it is a suicide. Now, to your point, you know, sin will find you out. That's what we're talking about. It's that slow suicide and that they're slowly dying. This is what people will say to justify this. Well, I just have a high sense of justice. Oh, is that how you justify revenge? Okay. Because we can play games all night here, you know, where you're, you're saying you have a high sense of justice, but I'm saying it's revenge.
That's what you're doing. And, and so, just back to like what Richard was saying, vengeance is mine. Why, why is vengeance his and not ours? Because we don't know how to exact it. We will go way past it. Way past it. And we will do something really wrong and complicate the whole thing even worse and make ourselves in a, in a mess. So, talking about hard hearts, that's how you get there. That's how you get out. But that's mainly the problem with most people is they have not dealt with the pain in their life. We all have pain. We're all going to deal with it. But it's how you process that pain in a biblical way or an unbiblical way is how you come out of that. Dennis. And, uh, and it's an excellent point. And here's what I want everyone to understand what Dennis has said. All that what you went through, Dennis, all of what all of you went through in your life is what made you what you are today. Now you think, I didn't want to go through all that. If I had to redo my life, I wouldn't go through that. But folks, if you hadn't, and I'm not saying that God caused it, but God took what the locusts had eaten and you redeemed it, right? So had you not gone through the pain, you would not have the character that you have today. You would not know the things that you know today. And you wouldn't have the wisdom that you have today had you not went through it. Therefore, you can say just like Joseph, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's how you have to start looking at your life. You can't go, like Dennis is making a good point, you can't go, it should have been this, I should have been able to do this, I wish I could have done that. And, the, and you can play that game all day long. You can play that game all day long. But you are who you are and you're at where you're at through the providence of God, not the, not the control of God, but the providence of God leading you into areas that you needed to learn about yourself. Had you not gone through the pain that other people caused you, then you would have went through life spiritually handicapped and not even knew it. The pain revealed the spiritual handicap in your life. And the pain was meant to get you to fix that. To grieve it, but then know how to secure it, how to strengthen it, and become strong in that area because God knew that you had a proclivity in this area that needed strengthening, so He let you get hurt in that area. You see how it works? Bingo. That's right. So there's discipleship, right? So you pass on what you have learned. You don't keep it to yourself. You pass it on. So what God is teaching you, you're to teach others. That's your responsibility. Because I can guarantee you, you're going to find a dozen people that went through the same thing you did in similar ways. And you can say, been there, done that. Let me tell you how to navigate through that. I've seen many situations like this where the ironic justice of God comes back to the person. Okay. So throughout all my years of counseling, I have, I have run into couples where a couple, one of the spouses will leave the other spouse for money. Okay. The spouse that they're married to doesn't make a lot of money, but they work hard, but they just don't make a lot of money because the person they're married to is very worldly, okay? And so that person that leaves wants more money, and so they leave their poorer spouse, and, and I mean, I've seen this from, 
from 20-year-olds to 30-year-olds all the way up to 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds, guys. So it runs the gamut. So this one couple, and then I'm remembering, and this goes back probably 15, 17 years ago when I was dealing with them. This gal wanted more out of her life money-wise. And she realized that her husband, and husband's a hard worker, but he's not going to make a lot of money in the profession that he was in. He's just not. It just is what it is. But he's, he's not lazy. He's a hard worker. That's his ceiling. She didn't like that ceiling, so she left him. She left him for another guy that has more money, has more potential and earning power than her former husband. So she, um, she marries this guy for money, obviously. It's not a, it's not a, a obviously a situation for love. Uh, you'll be shocked at how many people marry for all the wrong reasons. Uh, it's usually not for love. So anyway, she marries this guy for money. And um, he's a little older than her. And more of a daddy figure type situation. And where you have a, a parent-child in the relationship. And so she marries this guy and he has a lot of money. Okay. She gets married and she gets the money and she gets to live the lifestyle for some period of time. And she thinks that her plan was achieved. But then he divorces her and made her, when they got married, sign a prenup. So when he leaves, he leaves her with zero. Don't tell me that that's not ironic or poetic justice coming from God. You got what you want, but then when you had it, you lost it. And God would tell Israel, I will put holes in your money bags. If you start seeking the God of money, then I will put holes in that money bag and every money you put in that bag will come out in that hole. So she ended up with zero. Zero. I'm going to tell you something about the wheels of justice about God. They might grind slow, but they grind fine. And so when you see that, when it's, it's God doing the judging, that makes you trust God more and you feel vindicated and you say, aha, now I understand why vengeance is his. Because when you just let him work, oh, wow, it's stuff you could have never dreamed of. And that vindicates you. Do you think that guy that I talked about, the first original guy that didn't make a lot of money and she left him because he didn't have money, how he feels when he saw that that rich guy divorced her and she's left with nothing and she's living with mom and dad at 35 because she has zero. What do you think that guy is thinking? Thank you, Jesus. And that's... When you give it over to God, what happens? It may take a while, but it definitely comes. And then through all of, all of it, you get vindicated. And you didn't have to lift a, lift a finger, did you? They will set a trap for themselves and they will get enough rope that God will give them and they will actually hang themselves on the very thing that they're doing. Isn't that amazing, huh? That's why, but you have to trust God. You have to trust God for that. Anywho, we got to get you running. Let's. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.